Welcome to Sloanies Talking with Sloanies, a candid conversation with alumni and faculty about the MIT Sloan experience and how it influences what they're doing today. So, what does it mean to be a Sloanie? Over the course of this podcast, you'll hear from guests who are making a difference in their community, including our own very important one here at Sloan. I'm your host, Christopher Reichert. Hi, I'm uh, Christopher Reichert. Hi, I'm Noor Swade. And welcome to Sloanies Talking to Sloanies. So welcome, Noor, to our fourth in the series. Tell us a bit about where you work and about the, the last few years of your life. Well, thank you for having me. I run a venture capital firm based in Dubai, investing in emerging markets and companies that are scaling globally. I have a list here, actually, of your activities. So here I'm going to take a deep breath. But actually, I won't read them all. But I mean, one of the ones I'm interested in is the, uh, the Zen Yoga. Tell me about that whole adventure. So Zen Yoga was the first yoga studio in the Middle East and Africa, and we established it with the thinking that we really want to embrace wellness and teach wellness, and there was a massive opportunity to do a lot of market education on what wellness meant and how to access health and wellness beyond the traditional, meaning Western, uh, methods of medication. So we established 2006 as the first kind of yoga that had teachers that were Yoga Alliance certified and really trying to up-level the amount of education information about wellness in the region. Zen quickly grew to become the largest wellness chain across the region with 6,000 unique students, 72 teachers in a few years. So we scaled that quite rapidly and we sold it to a private equity firm, largely because every time I'd walk into the studio, I'd be inundated with business problems and couldn't practice yoga, so it defeated the purpose. So you started doing it for your own wellness yeah, it was very selfish of me. I thought <laughs> I want to practice business, yoga. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I can't be the only person in Dubai at the time that wanted a yoga studio. So I thought the best way to solve my problem was to fix it and build one. And how did you manage to scale? Um, slowly and steadily. At traditional businesses, service business, slow and steady. And so what did you in your first year realize, hey, we can do another one or two or five? Or Well, it was accidental. So I started Zen Yoga as a project. I had a full-time job. My full-time job was scaling a business that was at the time a family business. So mm-hmm. when I joined our family business in 2005, it was about $60 million in revenue. It's an interior contracting company. It was in six markets. By 2008, we had reached $600 million in revenue, 22 markets, the largest interior contractor globally. What does that mean, interior contracting? We take buildings that are just cement and steel, and we do everything on the inside and give you the front door keys. The only okay. thing we don't do is design. Right. Somebody else designs. And so that's Depa, is it? So that was Depa. De- Depa Limited, right. Um, so Zen was a project because I couldn't find a yoga studio and I needed my yoga to de-stress after a long day at Depa. <laughs> and so, again, it doesn't exist. You see a market need, you approach it and build it. And that was Zen. So Zen scaled at the same time as Depa. Depa, we IPO'd. I led the process with Morgan Stanley and UBS in April 2008. So just before the financial crisis. It was a dual listing in London and the Nasdaq Dubai. And that was a great success story for the region because it was a Dubai-based company that had become a global success story and really reinvented the market. So when you ask me about scaling Zen Yoga, I find it ironic because that was actually harder than scaling Depa. Right. And was that your family business? or mm-hmm. so, so how was that working with family uh, as well and then having your own separate business? So the family business occupied, I would say, 90% of my time. But... 
the learning for me was it's much harder to scale from zero to 10 mm-hmm. than to go from 60 to 600. Right. And working with family was fine. My father had founded the business in 96. So I came in nine years later. I came in for three weeks. That turned to three months. That turned to eight years. The first thing I did when I came in was build out governance. So I thought that governance was very important and institutionalized the business. That made it a lot easier to work within the confines of family. At the same time, the, the second thing I did was a private placement. I mean, it went hand in hand with the governance. And that capital of $120 million injection allowed the company to scale and scale very rapidly. So were these novel concepts to your, to your father or your, the, the family generally? Like, what, is this, what are you doing here? This seems like we're going to lose control. Was any of, that, any of that friction in the process? No, I think everyone was excited about the vision. Right. So I think that when it comes to scaling companies, vision is paramount. If you're aligned on the vision, the strategy shifts depending on market dynamics, regulatory frameworks, and the people you have around you. The vision is paramount and the capital is paramount. Mm-hmm. So without that capital, it's unlikely we'd be able to scale. Without the capital Zanyoga had in the beginning, it was unlikely Zanyoga would have scaled. But because it was so difficult to scale Zen, I realized that entrepreneurship is indeed where I wanted to work with mm-hmm. other founders, which is why now I'm an investor and a venture capitalist and really helping companies scale across global markets. And so who are you, who's approaching you and who you approach and what sort of, what's the nature of the businesses that, uh, that you're working with now, Global Ventures? So we like enterprise tech. So business to business companies focused on global scale. So really entrepreneurs with a global mindset. A lot of them live in Dubai. Dubai is a six hour flight from about 3 billion people. Hmm. So we have, you know, in the time it takes to get from East Coast to West Coast in the US, we have half the world's population almost. So it attracts a lot of talent. It's a great place to be. It's become an innovation hub for emerging markets. And we work with founders that are building out of the region, so out of the Middle East and Africa into Asia, into the US. One of our companies today launched in London. It's a food tech company, so we're very excited. And they're scaling massively. They've grown 12x on good base revenue in the last six months. So we're seeing massive scalability, great opportunities in terms of valuation and an abundance of talent on our side of the world. 50% of the population is under age 30, and the population's just over 400 million people. So I see you started uh, at Accenture way back. Way back when? Way back when. And that led to Sloan. Yes. And then you're obviously very versed in in the, the the area that you're working in, in terms of like the dynamics of it, the language of it, all the pressures of it. How how tell me about that path from from undergraduate, which was here in Boston, right? Yes, I went to BC for undergrad. So, you know, I think life is always full of opportunities if your eyes are open to find them. I learned how to code about thirty years ago, back in basic Fortran or basic, right? Basic. Interesting. I stopped coding, ultimately, but I used to TA all the computer engineering classes at BC to make a little bit of an income, although I was a finance economics pre-law. So it didn't seem to be a fit at the time. Mm -hmm. After BC, I went to Accenture because I wanted to delve into biotech. So I worked a lot in biopharma in Accenture because if you're interested in an industry but you have a finance degree, consulting is Mm -hmm. the only way to really explore that industry, a good way to get into it. And again, back to kind of the wellness and health space, which is a, is a theme in my life. After Accenture decided that I wanted to stay in Boston, I was living here with my sister. I lived literally a two-minute walk from Sloan. Right. So it seemed incredibly <laughs> <was>. convenient. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that when I, I attended classes in the four schools, I was fortunate enough to apply to. And for me, MIT felt like a complete, um, I guess, mixture of my passion and early exposure to tech as well as my understanding 
and skill set in finance. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the, the crossroads in my life that have led me to where I am today in venture capital, which is an intersection of technology and finance, and they just seem to be themes that keep coming back. It's where the world is going. Mm-hmm. It's down the street from where I used to live, so I didn't have to move. And most importantly, I, fo- I thought as I, as I uh, contemplated amongst the schools I was fortunate enough to, to look at, when I attended classes at Sloan, it just really struck me how much people raised their hands to ask questions as opposed to raising their hands to answer questions. And I walked away feeling that this is a place that people come when they actually want to learn and mm-hmm. explore. And there's an innate curiosity in most of the students here. And for me, if, if I was going to take two years out and do something, I wanted to be around people who were as intentional about their learning as I was. Right. Did you meet your husband here? Or? I did meet my husband did, here. Right? That's, that's the real reason I came here. <laughs> right, right. Did you know him prior? Or did you meet him? No. In... We met first week of school. Admit so or yeah. He has uh, started a year before me. Hmm. So we met because we both come from similar backgrounds and someone thought, oh, you guys should meet. Mm-hmm. It's the Middle East Club. Um, right. He used to run it. I ended up running it. And we got married two weeks after graduation. Wow. That's, that's intense. So you, you grew up in Dubai or did you grow up, where did you grow up and how did you, it was going back to Dubai, going home or is that where everyone moved eventually? I now recognize that there's a term for, for what I am, which actually makes me feel much more comfortable. So apparently I'm third culture, hmm. which means you're from one place, you grew up in another and you live in a third. Right. Okay. And so now there's a generation of people who are third culture. They've, they've termed it third culture. And so so what are the three for you? So I was born in Boston. Mm-hmm. But I grew up in London and Saudi and Dubai. Right. We moved to Dubai when I was 15, and then I moved back to Boston when I was 17. All right. And when I left Dubai, I never thought I'd go back, because when you move around all the time, and Dubai in the 90s was not Dubai today. But my family stayed there, Mm -hmm. and so I would keep going coming. And after Sloan, I had an offer with Booz Allen. My husband had an offer with McKinsey. Both were in Dubai. And Mm -hmm. so um, it kind of made sense to try it out for two years, and we're still there 14 years later. Right. Sounds familiar. I moved to Australia accidentally, and I thought I'd stay there for six months or a year, and I ended up staying 13 years. So it's funny how life kind of takes that adventure. 85 broads. Way back when. Way back when. What a, funny, called, what a funny name. But now it's... it's Now it's called Elevate. Right. Sally Krawcheck, isn't it? Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, 85 Broads was named off of 85 Broad Street, right. which is the headquarters of Goldman Sachs. And the lady who founded it was at Goldman and left Goldman and, and uh, missed the female network of Goldman and then included HBS and Sloan and all the business schools and all the undergrads. And now it's the largest, I think, professional network of women globally. So when I moved back to Dubai, I really missed that network and so thought to uh, start a chapter, mm-hmm. which very quickly became the second largest chapter outside the U.S., um, and we had, within a couple of years, 450 members of professional women so in this network. Um, we, until now, host the largest conference in the region for females. It sells out within 48 hours at 500 seats. I no longer run it. There's an amazing woman called Rana Nawas who has her own podcast called When Women When, who runs that. Um, and she she's done an incredible job with it, taking it to another level. So you, um, you, were, you were part of an organization uh, running a company into your contracting company. Mm-hmm. So that's like the day nitty gritty of running a business. Mm-hmm. Zen Yoga, same thing, mm-hmm. running a business. And now, while you are running Global Ventures, but it seems to me that has a different focus, right? Which is a lot of conversations with nascent businesses. What's the draw to you for that? I'm solving a problem. 
The problem I find is the access to capital. So consistently in our part of the world, in emerging markets, there's less capital for young companies than there is globally. So specifically in the Middle East and Africa, less than 0.02% of GDP goes towards venture capital. That number is about 0.2% in Europe and 0.3% in the US. So it's 10 times less on a per capita or GDP basis, however you slice it or dice it. So that means that as founders have great opportunities, they get to a million or five million in revenue, they want to scale, they need to hire people, they're super excited about what they're doing, they found their product market fit, they have clients, but then they hit a wall. And so when I look back at the opportunities that I've had, I've been fortunate enough to have access to capital, and we've successfully scaled because of that. So I believe that even with the best strategies and the best people, without the right capital, Mm -hmm. it's very difficult to grow, especially in emerging markets where sales cycles can be longer. So the problem we're solving now is access to capital, where it just happens to be called VC. And by providing the right capital tools and access and network to these young companies, and we invest, to be clear, in series A's and B's, nothing pre-revenue. So mm-hmm. north of a million dollars in revenue, at least five clients. So you're there, it's just you need to grow. By providing them with capital, we expect that not only will they grow rapidly, they will also employ, because we have 40% youth unemployment, mm-hmm. and they will create jobs, and they will become regional success stories that thereafter reinvest in the ecosystem and grow the ecosystem. So with the growth of Dubai as a city, right? I mean, from what it was, you said, what, in the 90s, you said, mm-hmm. to now, does that uh, create opportunities for new businesses to, there's an ecosystem that's growing there, or is that sort of happening at a different level that it's hard for people who aren't part of that to get into? And are you sort of bridging that gap? So it creates opportunities for people to innovate because we have a lot of innovators and try new things, especially in industries where we're ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have logistics, oil and gas, the food industry, all areas where actually we lead, even by global standards. And then you have the emulations. So you know this worked in the U.S. We you know change it slightly and it works here. So we do both. Dubai is a place where you can show up and start a business. It's not cheap to live or to start a business. Both, just like you would expect in Boston or San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So it's the equivalent. It's, it's Exactly. Right. So it's not like starting a business somewhere in a second or third tier city where you could expect it to be very cost competitive. So Dubai is somewhere where anyone's welcome to come and start a business and scale that business. It's also somewhere where there are already founders. So most large international corporations manage MENA, MIA, MIASA, EMEA out of Dubai. <laughs> acronym city, right? so, some acronym of the region, you know, Europe, Middle East, Africa, out of Dubai. So from Oracle to Google to Facebook, most of them have a few thousand people sitting in Dubai, mm-hmm. engineers, salespeople. As these people spend five, six, seven years there, ultimately they leave, they start their own businesses, they need capital. Mm-hmm. There is no capital. We come in. Right. So, uh, so where are they? Where are you investing? Are they located in Dubai, or are they kind of in, in the whole MENA region? How far away? What's your What's your kind of reach or your? So our reach is everything from Africa to Pakistan. Mm-hmm. All the under undercapitalized ecosystems. We ultimately find that as companies start to scale, they move to Dubai, largely because it provides first world infrastructure. And mm-hmm. I mean, this is the UAE in general, so it could be Abu Dhabi. Right. So it's first world infrastructure. So you have you know electricity that doesn't cut internet that works really well. Right. Good transportation. Um, you, good transportation. You can attract talent. Global companies headquartered there so they can become your clients. So it works in, in that sense. And so as they start to scale, they relocate there. As they seek funding, they come there. So generally, we see most things from Africa to Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Not everything. No one sees everything. Um, but most of it passes through at some point. 
Are you seeing any any pressures or advantages that you can take in, that you can um, take advantage of with Brexit or with London becoming you know uncertain and as a financial center that you can then swipe I think we off? saw a little bit of advantage there. We also saw advantage in you know your own politics out here. Um, especially, not mine, not mine. <laughs> Hang on a minute. <laughs> By your own, I mean, you know, U.S. Um, I'm going to claim my Australian citizenship for this podcast. <laughs> well, you know, I think that um, sure. that U.S. politics have made it more attractive for people from the region to stay in the region. Just in, yeah, keep the talent there. Exactly. Right. I think that's... that's it's I, been very helpful to our brain drain. It seems so short-sighted and it's great people are taking advantage of it. So Sloan, you were in Boston mm. and you were working at Accenture mm. and you chose Sloan to get your master's for finance. How did it, um, do you have any, any memories you want to share of your, your time at Sloan besides meeting your husband <laughs> and getting married to you? That's the most important memory. Everything else is just, you know, a far second after that. Any um, professors that you have memories of or influential you or that you keep in touch some with? Some professors, um, some professors were very influential. I think the learnings I took were um, were just across the board fascinating. But I think more importantly, I made such great friends. Right. So a lot of people who I'm still in touch with, and especially as now, you know, for almost 14 years later, you know, a lot of us have regained touch. So I think it's a really nice community. We're all very close to each other, um, whether it's the females. So a lot of my girlfriends are Sloanies. And when I'm in San Francisco, I see them. When I'm in New York, I see them. When I'm in London, I see them. It's a really global network of amazing women and men. But from where I sit, that's what I took from it more than anything else. So when you were approached to, to, to join the MIT Sloan Alumni Board, what was your thinking in, in, in deciding to do it or, or, or just generally being engaged with Sloan? So really, I think that the school has an opportunity to engage its alumni more and to speak the story of kind of who it is through its alumni. Some of the most incredible and smartest people in my personal network are Sloan alums from years before me, years after me. And I thought that it, you know, it would make sense to participate as long as the ability to kind of help Sloan shine through its alumni was something that we could do. Mm-hmm. And did you find any, any particular areas that you were particularly interested in that irritated you perhaps over the years that you're thinking, no, now I have a chance to change that? Or improve it or alter it or have a conversation about well, it. Well, uh, the first thing I think is that the the way that the school communicates with its alumni is not as um, as forceful or as as pervasive in our lives as it could be. So I don't remember every day that I'm a Sloan alum. Right? Um, <laughs> you I, are. I think that other people from other schools probably remember every day where they went to school, right? I also think, and especially because I spend a lot of time in the Bay Area in San Francisco, the Stanford network there is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And in my head, it really is pervasive in the culture of the way doing things. So I think that, you know, bringing more of that to the MIT and Sloan Adams was great. And why not? Right. That we learn from the best around us and the way that they leverage each other's networks and the way that they're all really well connected to each other which Sloan alums could be a bit more of. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the your recent Forbes. What is it, an award? How do we list your mention on, on the list that Forbes is one of the top uh, most prominent venture capitalists in the uh, MENA region? How did you find out about that? What's been the what's been the uh, the reaction to people around you? In has it made any difference to you? So the Forbes, um, the world's top fifty women in tech list, is right. something that was published 
I found out about it two days after I was on it when someone congratulated me. <laughs> um, and it's ironic because it's a great, I, I know three people on that list. They're all people that I admire. I was very honored and humbled to be on that list. I think it's good because it kind of, it helps me in one of my missions, which is to rewrite the narrative about Arab women. So it shows that, you know, there's at least an Arab on there. We are competitive globally and especially in this space, which is incredibly exciting. Right. And so, again, I'm going to put calling up on my phone here kind of the list of all the things you've been part of. General Please partners, don't. independent board director, <laughs> chief investment officer, you know, IPO, first woman-led IPO in, in the Middle East, now Global Ventures, the Forbes list, married. How, how many children do you have? I have three boys. So, so what is your definition of success? Um, if you think about all the things you're doing and what drives you. Well, first, my three boys. Um, so they're now 10, 8, and 5 and a half. And they drive me. <laughs> Nuts a lot. sometimes. <laughs> a lot. No, I think it's important, especially back to rewriting the narrative, right? It's important for our younger generation of men to open their eyes to the world and see that, you know, it's a fair world out there and that, you know, you can do whatever you set your mind to do. My definition of success is really to be able to do what you love. I'm very fortunate. I'm very blessed and lucky to have the job I have and to be able to work with founders and to be inspired by their stories and what they want to achieve and just to be a part of their story and their mission. We're very honored to be able to play in the ecosystem. Success, I think, is a fleeting moment. And for me, success is just defined when you wake up in the morning and the first thing you should do is smile and just be grateful that there's another 24 hours for you to get out there and do what you love. That's great. What um, so so Global Ventures is what a year old now? Yes. Just just just, just over, over a year, year old. Right. What's what's the next what do you think the next year or two or three or five is for that? Well, we're very fortunate that we were able to do a first close, make our first five investments. We'd like to see the portfolio grow up to fifteen investments to do mm -hmm. a final close in the next um, not sure how long. And then to grow that as an emerging market venture capital firm, tapping into kind of the next billion, the rising billion that are underserved in terms of their capital needs and their growth opportunities. And really taking a look at how we can build that out into something that's the global best practice. And how patient is your capital? Is your um, notion for the capital? My capital <laughs> is more patient than me. So, so I'm in a very fortunate place. I patience is not one of the virtues that I that I hold, unfortunately. So do you so have you when you pitch to when you take on a company, mm -hmm. do you kind of give them a, a time frame where you're saying, you know, we're looking at one year, five years? So it's a seven year fund. Seven year which okay. is very typical. We've kept everything in the firm as global best practice as we can. So we're really trying to build out something that's really at a high level. Mm -hmm. And that goes from our terms to our timeline to the way we operate, um, due diligence. This is something that's supposed to be long term. So we enjoy what we do enough that we can be as patient as we need to be. Mm -hmm. And our capital is very smart capital, so it understands how patient it needs to be. And the entrepreneurs know that we're VCs, we're not strategic investors. Right. So we're strategic in the sense that we can add expertise and network, but we're not there for a 20-year horizon. Right, and are there any venture capitalists that you look to as good guides for how to set this up or build this or grow this or mature it? Whether you look to California or do you look to Boston? Of New course, York? Boston. <laughs> So London. Boston, who's in Boston? General Catalyst is a great firm. Um, I think they've built very methodically and thoughtfully the firm, the funds, their portfolio companies. So that's, that's a great firm. There's many out there. I think 
the less often spoken of ones um, are are incredible to work with because mm-hmm. they tend to have the time more than others. Do you see partnering with them on some maybe a larger investment or? Well, our last investment, um, Axel came into, mm-hmm. and Gobi came into out of Singapore. That's a large Singapore fund. So we try with every investment we do to bring in some international capital. We work with the VCs globally and with our international LP base um, to diligence and validate the companies we're seeing. I would say half our capital comes from the U.S. The other half comes from the region. And everyone is incredibly value additive and um, smart and willing to lend their expertise when we go through the diligence process and growth. Interesting. All right. Well, this has been great. I just wanted to know if you had any parting advice or thoughts for prospective students or for for alumni for engaging with the school or what's next for you? How long are you in town for and then where do you? I flew in last night. I leave tonight. I go back to Dubai and parting thoughts, you know, sharing words. Um, Nothing really. I think that life is always full of opportunity and um, often we're so hung up on the path that we've, you know, made for ourselves that we forget to look around. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Thank you very much. This is Nora Swade. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. We're honored to have you coming in from Dubai. Just for this, right? Just for this. Absolutely. (laughs) Sloanies Talking with Sloanies is produced by the Office of External Relations at MIT Sloan School of Management. You can subscribe to this podcast by visiting our website, mitsloan.mit.edu slash alumni, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Support for this podcast comes in part from the Sloan Annual Fund, which provides essential, flexible funding to assure that our community can pursue excellence. Make your gift today by visiting giving.mit.edu slash Sloan.